Well, let's take our Bible and go to, Gen uh, go to Galatians chapter number 3, if you would. Galatians chapter number 3. And I am incredibly excited for not only the opportunity to be here, but to talk about what God, what God gives us here in Galatians chapter number 3. How many of you have favorite passages of the Bible? Are there passages that you just kind of love uh, looking at and reading? Are there passages of the Bible where you slow down a little bit when you get there? You kind of take your time. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of times I read my Bible too quickly and just kind of fly through stuff and then I'll slow down. And man, there's a lot here that I was missing before. Galatians 3 may be one of those passages. So we'll read a couple of verses and uh, take some time to get into this. Galatians chapter 3, let's read verse number 21 down through verse number 23. Galatians 3 and verse number 21. The Bible says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should be afterward, which afterwards be revealed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you, Lord, for each student here and for our leadership. Thank you for uh, Dr. Chapel and Dr. Getch and others that uh, have invested decades here in uh, this ministry. Fathers, I was thinking about back this morning over, I'm not sure, but maybe 15 or 16, perhaps 1,700 chapel messages that I've heard here at West Coast Baptist College as a student and then as faculty. Lord, thankful for the, thank you for the work you've done in my heart. And Father, we just pray that as you bring us together today, I pray that you would enable me. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we go through the scripture, that we would understand better what you've done for us on the cross and also how that should look as we apply it in our lives. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever gotten into a car and turned on the car, started maybe out of a driveway or the parking lot and the radio was on? Maybe you have it on a game or maybe you have it on a, a talk radio or maybe you have it on NPR or something's going on and you turn the car on, you start driving and it's already started the program or the game is already underway. And as you're listening, you're interested in it, but you miss the first part. Have you ever walked in, maybe at home, you walk into your house and uh, you get home, somebody's already home ahead of you and you walk in, they're in the living room, they've got maybe a TV show on or a movie's going on and you sit down, you enjoy the last part of it, but you miss the first part. And as you sit down, if you've never seen it before, you, you, you see kind of how it picks up midstream, but you feel like you missed a little bit ahead of that. Well, I always feel like that when I open a passage in the middle of a book. I always feel like there's a little bit of backstory that I need before I get to this place. And that's certainly true in, Gen in Galatians chapter number 3. So as we open the book right here in the middle of this incredible book, a book that was foundational for Luther and for uh, the, the Reformation, for Calvin, for uh, even before that, for this church here, these churches in the Galatian region, the incredible truths here, we're picking up right in the middle. So 
So let me give you a real quick recap of what's already happened, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about the first half of the movie that you weren't here to see because we didn't want to read the whole book. And you go all the way back to Galatians chapter number one, and you're probably familiar with how it starts. He gives a salutation, and then verse number six in Galatians, he says, I marvel, I am amazed, I am in wonderment that you're so quickly, so soon removed from the gospel, which is not another gospel. It's not, it's, it, it's, it's completely different from what I told you. Remember that? So the theme of Galatians is really not going back, not turning back, not compromising on the gospel. Well, what was happening? What was happening in this church? Most of these were Jewish believers. In what way were they going back? In what way were they departing from the gospel? We see what was happening is a lot of these people had a Jewish background, and, and they got saved, they received the gospel, and as they were growing as a Christian, they began thinking that they could supplement the work that Christ did on the cross. These are Jewish people. They have the law. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and they know them, and they grew up practicing them, and then they get saved, and they incrementally, a little bit at a time, start adding some things back in. So they're a Christian, they're a follower of, the, of Christ, but then they want to add some stuff back in. One of the conversations is on circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God gave to the, to, through Abraham to all Jewish males. And, and Paul argues in this passage, in, in chapter 5, he later says, if, if you're circumcised, you become a debtor to the entire law. By the way, I looked this up, I never realized this before preparing for this message today. We're familiar with the law of Moses. We talk about that sometime. The law of Moses is a phrase appears 22 times in your King James Bible. You know what never appears ever in the Bible is this phrase, laws of Moses. You see, we think of 613 laws and that the Jews were trying to keep all of them, but this was a one unified command. This was the law in the singular of Moses. And what Paul is trying to help them understand is you can't supplement the work of Christ without supplanting it. You can't add to what Christ did without diminishing it. You can't compromise with the Judaizers without completely leaving the gospel. It's another gospel. It was genuine legalism that, that they were struggling with. So, so Paul opens the book and says, I'm just amazed that you're so quickly removed from the faith. He goes through in chapter number one, he gives a defense of his apostleship. He has to do that a lot. Have you noticed that in the New Testament? By the way, watch this. A lot of times when people want to attack the work of God or they want to attack the word of God, they'll often start by attacking the man of God or they'll start by attacking the messenger of God. And I'm not for holding somebody up in esteem. I mean, we are, we are leaders among equals. We are, uh, the level is, uh, the cross is level, ground is level at the cross. And I'm not talking about the worship, but, but here's what you do know. And you need to know this, because if you're going to be a Christian leader, this may happen to you, that when you're a leader in the church of Christ, or when you influence others in the kingdom of Christ, there's a target on your back. And there will be some people that say unkind things about you. And there will be some people that say untrue things about you. And the Apostle Paul, after he left, not while he was there, that's how it works too usually, people came in and they started bad-mouthing the Apostle Paul, and then they started diminishing the gospel of Christ. So Paul has to sit down and he writes, off, he writes this letter. He fires off the book of Galatians. So he, he, he defends the gospel. He then goes into defending his apostleship. In, in Galatians chapter number two, he had this conflict with Peter. 
The region of Galatia, this isn't a single church. The Galatians, it would be like writing a letter to, uh, you know, Arizona or Rhode Island or, uh, you know, a, a peer, uh, area in the country. So the region of Galatia, kind of Asia Minor, what they called at that time. So he's writing to these churches. And in chapter number two, he deals with this problem. See, there was a whole group of people that got saved, and the apostle Peter was there, and Peter initially was friendly with everybody. Peter was, was included in meals and included other people in meals, and there was this strong bond, this Christian fellowship, this, this understanding that we are one in Christ. But then some people came from Jerusalem that were a little bit highbrow. They were a little bit strict. They were really rigid in some areas. They were Jews, and they were saved, or they said they were saved, but they also had these other standards, these other expectations. And when they showed up, they started, I think, intimidating Peter. So Peter eventually starts backing away from the Gentile Christians and began only fellowshipping with the Jewish believers. He separated from, or stopped fellowshipping with, the Christians that were maybe uncircumcised or maybe weren't recognizing the holy days of the Jews or maybe uh, weren't keeping any of the law and instead he was taking kind of the high road and was, was going with the people with the higher expectation of, of including some of these habits or these laws into the Christianity. And what, Paul, what, what Peter says, or uh, Paul says to Peter, is you're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. I think it's verse number 14 of Galatians chapter number 2. He says, I withstood him to his face. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that? The Apostle Paul and the first pope. No, he wasn't the first pope, but the Apostle Paul and Peter, and they're there at Galatia. And Peter, in fact, Paul later tells Timothy when he's writing to Timothy, hey, an elder that sins before all needs to be rebuked before all. And, and Paul here says, I had to withstand him to his face because there were, he was publicly departing from the gospel by making all these divisions and kind of sectioning up the church in ways God never intended. And, and he had to deal with that. And he reminds them in this letter that he had to deal with that, just in case they'd forgotten. And then in, in Galatians chapter number 3, where we'll spend our time today, he begins walking through one of the most central theological concepts in Christianity. But I love how he starts. Galatians 3, in verse number 1, he begins with this phrase, Foolish Galatians. One scholar I read suggested that this could be translated in a more parochial sense. It would sound something like this. Dear idiots in Galatia. <laughs> it's kind of how he's starting chapter number three. My dear idiots in Galatia, why are you so idiotic? That's really what he's saying here. So he, he begins this passage, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? You see, what he's recognizing here is that they had departed from the central truth. This wasn't preferential. This wasn't peripheral. This wasn't something that you could genuinely have a different opinion on, they were messing with the gospel here. And he said, you foolish Galatians, you, you dear idiots, if you would, what are you doing? Why are you messing with the gospel? And he addresses a question that all of us have wondered at some point in time in our life, and that is, how is it that the law relates to the Christian life? And in fact, he begins by asking a question that I think even precedes that. How did people even get saved in the Old Testament? Have you ever wondered that? 
How before Jesus did anyone become righteous before God? Some people that maybe haven't read Scripture thoroughly will say something uninformed like, well, in the Old Testament, people got saved by works, and in the New Testament, you got saved by faith. And that's absolutely wrong. That's heretical. And Paul addresses that in this passage. It's, it's not true that people used to get saved by following the law, but now you get saved through the gospel of Christ. <laughs> what Paul is saying here is that's absolutely never been true. And, and here's how he addresses that. If you've got your Bible still open in Galatians chapter number 3, he, he, he talks about Abraham. Abraham lived in the Old Testament. Abraham didn't have the gospel of Christ. Abraham never was told of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, how did Abraham get saved? He answers that in verse number 6. He says here, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? Abraham wasn't righteous. Abraham's righteousness was accounted to him because he believed God. Guess what? That's how we get saved today. You're not righteous. Your righteousness is accounted to you because of your faith. So what he's saying here is God's not kind of flipping the script here in the New Testament. God's not walking back his, what he had said earlier with Jesus. God's not changing what he intended to do here in the New Testament. In other words, this has been God's plan all along. God wasn't deviating from what he had said in the Old Testament. God was completing what he said in the Old Testament. And just like Abraham was accounted righteous because he believed God, so you and I, Jew or Gentile, in any age, on any continent, in any age of our life, can also be accounted righteousness. Righteous before God because of the faith that we express. So in this passage, he continues to unpack this idea, and I want to bring out three truths related to the law that affect you and I as Christians today. And first we see the nature of the law. Verse number 10. The nature of the law. Verse number 10 says the law brings a curse. See what the passage says here? Verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. The law brings a curse. The law wasn't a blessing. The law wasn't a, a, a good thing. The law was the opposite. The law brought a curse. Because the problem was, if you tried to do the law and you didn't do all of the law, then you were guilty for all of the law. In fact, the Bible explicitly tells us that in James chapter number 2. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. As we said earlier, the Bible never talks about the laws of Moses. It is always the law of Moses. Imagine with me 
going down to maybe Long Beach or going down to one of these piers. Here in California, we like our piers. And typically today, when you go to a pier, it, uh, you go there and you can buy maybe some kind of uh, gumbo or you can buy some kind of churro or you can get some kind of snack or treat or meal and enjoy the sights. Some of them even have a Ferris wheel, you know, Santa Monica and stuff like that. But a pier is initially built so that you could dock a ship in areas where it's too shallow. When you don't have a port, you build a pier. It's one or the other, typically. So we have these piers in California that were initially built so that you could have shipping. And then we kind of dredged out and made some harbors and stuff, Long Beach and other places, and it works out better. But if you were to go to a pier, maybe 100 years ago, and there was a ship at the end of the pier, and it was moored to the dock to the pier by a single chain. Probably they'd have a couple chains on it, but one chain held the ship to the dock. Have you ever seen the chains that hold ships down? Have you ever been to a port and seen that? It's maybe a little bit too transparent. I don't like to admit my deficiencies, but I've seen these links on these chains so big, I can't, le I can't lift one of them. They're just massive circles of metal, one after another. And if you get your hands under it and you strain, all you do is just turn right in the face. I can't lift them up because there are huge chains. Each chain weighs hundreds of pounds. So imagine this huge ship is tied to that pier by a single chain. Let me ask you a question. How many of those links need to break for that ship to become unmoored? Just one, right? You see, if you have this chain holding a ship to the pier and 20% of the chain breaks, that doesn't mean 20% of the ship leaves, right? 100% of the ship leaves. If 1% of the chain breaks, and that's the analogy of the law. The law is this singular command of God. God commands us to keep the law. And under the Mosaic law, you were commanded to keep these laws. And what, what James is saying is, Hey, if you keep the whole law, but you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. The entire chain breaks when one link breaks. The entire uh, guilt of the law is placed on you when one law is broken. And what Paul is wanting them to see is, you don't want the law, you want Christ. Because the law brings a curse. We see, secondly, the law does not require faith. Look at verse number 12. Galatians 3 and 12, the Bible says, For the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Do you recognize the law doesn't require faith? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to do what God said to do without having faith? Well, to the extent that anyone is able to do what God said to do. We all fail at some point. But you can keep some law without faith. Last year, several students went with me to Israel and some of them are still here. Who went to Israel with me last summer? Anybody, we've got, I think, six or seven of us left. Where are you guys? Come on. Who? There's a couple. Okay, there's a couple of us that went. Uh, a couple of us went over to Israel. There's this amazing experience. There's so many things about Israel that just kind of blow your mind. And one of them is how they keep the law. Because that's a really big deal over there in Israel. As I said, I have a brother training uh, in school over there in Israel, in graduate school now. And he said, first weekend he was over there, he took a bus to go to some gym, was doing climbing wall and working out, and had to walk an hour back to his apartment. He didn't know the bus had stopped on Friday night because of Sabbath. Like, it shuts down. It's amazing. Well, toward the end of the trip, we were staying at this little resort hotel area on the Sea of Galilee. 
The problem was we kept a full activity even over the Sabbath, but the Jews around us didn't. So you can't hope to get hot coffee on Saturday morning. It's just cold coffee or no coffee. So it was cold coffee, right? <laughs> no question there. But uh, you can't get hot coffee because they're not going to light a flame. They're not going to light a fire. Well, this is the weirdest thing. So it's Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? So we're getting, we're checking out of this hotel and we walk out and right where we unloaded, there's this big loading area and the bus wasn't there. And I asked our guy, where's the bus? We're supposed to be loading our luggage here in just a few minutes. There's no bus there. And she was like, oh, it's the Sabbath. So we can't pull the bus in. The bus is down on the street. Really? So because we're not supposed to work, we have to drag our luggage all the way down out to the street? Like, that's how you honor God? I didn't say that. But in my mind, I'm thinking, <laughs> how is that better? How is that not working, right? Because that was a lot of work. We all had a squat by the time we finally found the bus. Why couldn't they pull it up? Because it was the Sabbath. And the way they honor the Sabbath, you, you have to scratch your head and think, you really think God's going to like you better, be pleased with you in heaven because your coffee was cold and not hot on Saturday morning? Is that really what it's about? Because you didn't push the button on the elevator to stop the, the car at the right floor? That's what you're depending on to get you to heaven because you walked instead of drove and because you didn't eat ham and because you didn't put milk and meat in the same meal with, without uh, having a kosher preparation and eating them at different times? What Paul is telling them here is, this law doesn't require faith. And the most amazing thing about it is to talk to a Jewish person over there in Israel and ask them about their faith. And to have a lot of them say, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. And there's a lot of atheist Jews that walk on the Sabbath, that don't eat ham, and that drink their coffee cold on Saturday morning because they're following the law and they don't have faith. Here's what Paul wants you to know. You can keep the law to an extent without any faith at all. Keeping the law is no evidence that you have faith. All throughout the Old Testament we see that, don't we? You ever have God say anything in the Old Testament, something like, I'm sick and tired of your new moons and your feasts and your Sabbath and your offerings. They're just revolting to me. Yeah, why? Because they were doing the work, but they didn't have the faith. So what Paul is showing them here, hey, it's not all about the law. Why? Well, number one, because the law brings a curse. Number two, because the law doesn't require faith. Number three, because Jesus delivered us from the law. Look at verse number 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hang on a tree. Jesus delivered us from the law. Then he says that God's promises never did depend on the law. Look at verse number 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on all Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is amazing. Watch this. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Okay, I'm going to give you a human illustration here. Though it be but a man's covenant, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth to it. Okay, let me pause. There is, in my home a place known to a few close friends and a few family members, a sealed envelope. And in that sealed envelope, signed by myself and my wife and two legal witnesses, is our will. It's not exactly the same, but it's really close to what he's talking about here. So we have a will. My wife made me do a will first time we went together to El Salvador. She's like, we need a will before we get on that plane. So we did a will, probably had to update it. And it says who gets our kids and, you know, what happens to our uh, whatever estate we have. And, and it's, you guys know what a will is. 
Probably, hopefully, your parents might have one. How many of you know who you'd be raised by if both your parents die? And your parents, isn't that kind of a weird conversation? Like, you're going with Aunt Sally. Like, no, please don't die, right? That would be awful. But, so we have a will, and it says who gets our kids and, and stuff. And this isn't actually what the will says. But let's say, as a way of illustration, that our will said, upon the sudden decease of Brandy and Toby England, the entire estate, uh, the entire value of our estate, will be gifted to our oldest daughter, Anastasia, upon her 18th birthday. That wouldn't be a real fair will, but let's say that's what the will said. Cut out Bennett, Cameron, and Danessa, and Anastasia gets all of it when she turns 18, right? She'd love it. So, let's say that's what our will is. Okay, now watch this. This is the human illustration of the theological truth that Paul's given us here. Okay, watch this. If that were to happen, the unfortunate event of our demise and uh, Anastasia reaches 18 and she goes to the uh, courthouse and they open the will and the judge says, upon this will, the estate of Toby and Brandy England is hereby granted to Anastasia upon this day, her 18th birthday. And then she sets that down and says, the only thing I want to add is that we'll transfer this money into your account after you get accepted into this college have three semesters of a GPA of 2.0 or higher, and choose one of these career paths, upon which time we'll grant you the money. Is a judge allowed to do that? If I said she gets the money at this point, is a judge allowed to say, not the trustee of the estate, just the judge executing by will, is a judge allowed to add to it like that? No, you're not allowed to do that. The judge isn't allowed to arbitrarily change your will, right? Now, here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Just like the human example of a testament or a will that, that you don't, once it's made, you don't add to or subtract from it. Look what he says in verse number 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though a man, be, though a man be a man's covenant, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or added thereto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. So the promise that he's talking about, verse number 14, the blessing of Abraham that would come to the Gentiles, this redemption that we have, verse 16 says, this was made to Abraham. Okay, you know this. Who lived first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham. By about, he says in the next verse, 430 years. Okay, now watch this. If God made a promise to Abraham that included the salvation of the Gentiles and the blessing of redemption through Christ by faith. By the way, that all happens in Genesis chapter 12 and following. If God made that promise to Abraham 430 years prior to Moses, when Moses comes along and gives the law, is this God rewriting his promise? Is God adding to his testament? Is God saying, yeah, yeah, that whole promise thing about redemption and salvation and the blessing of all nations, that's all good. Uh, in, but let me add some qualifications to that. Let me add 613 additional requirements. Paul is saying, absolutely not. The promise of redemption that was given to Abraham preceded and postcedes the law. It's unaffected by the law. The law was never the means by which the promise of Abraham was to be delivered. That's his contention here in uh, verse number 14 that the promise never depended on the law. So we've seen the nature of the law. Let's quickly look at the inferiority of the law. And let's jump all the way down to verse number 19 for that. Verse number 19 tells us 
Wherefore then serveth the law? Okay, if you're like me, you're probably wondering something at this point. Hey, if the law was temporary and not permanent, if the law was uh, never meant to deliver the promise, if the law was never the initial way that God committed himself to being a blessing to all nations, if, if all of this is true about the law, why did we even have a law? Do you wonder that? Why was there even a law? If there's all these problems with the law, the inferiority of the law is what we just talked about, then why was there a law at all? Well, Paul knew you'd be wondering that. And he answers the question here. He addresses the question in verse number 19. Wherefore serveth the law? Why is there even a law? He says here, it was added because of transgression. Well, here's one reason. We have a law because of transgression. I think there's a restraining influence that the law brought about. There's a reason why you don't speed much. Notice I didn't say there's a reason you don't speed at all, because maybe, maybe you do. But you don't typically drive 40 miles over the speed limit, do you? No. Usually it's 8 or something, right? It's not 40. Because you don't want your car impounded, and you don't want to haul off in handcuffs, right? You don't want to be recklessly handcuffed. A ticket you want to avoid, having your car impounded, really bad news, right? Spending the night in jail. Yeah, that's hard to get a pass for. Go to the dean's office. I need a pass to spend the night in jail because I was, had my car impounded, right? So there's a reason you don't speed much. And the reason isn't because you care about everybody else on the road as much as you care about yourself. That's not why. Is it? And the reason why isn't because you are extremely excessively careful and you would never want to drive at a rapid rate of speed. That's not why either, is it? I spent some time this summer with the college tour group up in the New York area and the Eastern Seaboard, and man, there are a lot of days we'd get in, we'd have a drive we had to go, and, and I, I would think, man, wouldn't it be great if the, the laws, the speed limit and everything applied to everybody on the road except for me, and they all had to drive in the right lane, and the left lane was mine? Man, we would get there so much faster. We'd be flying down that road. But you know what? I didn't actually drive recklessly in that van for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons was the law restrained me. I didn't want tickets, because guess what? I can, if I travel and I have to fly somewhere and I have to eat a meal or something, I can sometimes get a reimbursement from the college for that. You don't get reimbursements for tickets, do you, Doctor? No reimbursements for tickets, right? That's out of my pocket. I didn't want that. So you know what? I was careful. I was restrained. So Paul says, why was there even a law? Well, there was, there's a sense in which the law is because of transgression. Then we see the law is temporary. Look at verse number 19. It was added to this promise because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was, uh, so it was given until a certain time, until the seed would come. And that seed, he says, is not seeds, plural, it's seeds, singular, talking about Jesus. So the law was given because of transgression. The law was given for a temporary period of time. And then at the end here, he says the law is given through a mediator. Galatians 19, here at the end, it was ordained by an angel. You know, Romans chapter 8 says about the law and that the law for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sin, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. See, the law wasn't weak in and of itself, but the law was weak due to the flesh. It's not a problem with the law, but there's a problem with who the law was given to. 
and that is us. So we've seen the inferiority of the law. We've seen, secondly here, the, or the nature of the law, the inferiority of the law. And then third, we see the release from the law. This is incredible. The release from the law. Look at how this all shifts here at the end. Verse number 20. But now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which had given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. What Paul is arguing here, and he said in verse number 13 as well, is that we, there's a release from the law. We're not under the law anymore. If I were to ask you, how much of the Old Testament law are you under? Are you under all of the law, some of the law, or none of the law? Well, we know we're not under all of the law because you can't still do sacrifices at a temple and you don't need a temple because, well, because Jesus, that's why, right? Because Jesus, you don't need to do burnt offerings. You don't need to do uh, any of those Old Testament offerings because of Jesus, right? So we're not under all the law. That's pretty obvious. Are you under some of the law? And this is where a lot of us land. There's some of the law that's still binding to me, but not all of it. The problem with that is determining what parts of the law you're under or not. Have you ever read through the Old Testament and you're like, that sounds good? Yeah, that's probably still active today. That doesn't sound good. Nah, that doesn't apply to me. Think there's a problem with that hermeneutic? You go through the Old Testament. Sometimes you say there's a civil law and a ceremonial law and a moral law. And I think that there are, but the Jews don't divide them as such. And they're all mixed up. I pulled an example, one of my favorite examples here is in Leviticus chapter number 19 and verse 28. Leviticus 19 and verse number 28 forbids placing a mark on your flesh. A lot of people think of this, they may talk about uh, a tattoo or something, forbids placing a mark on your flesh, Leviticus chapter 19. Here's my question, does that apply to us today? Well, how do we tell? Well, we'd say, let's go to the context. Let's see what the context says. Well, the context is the verse right before it forbids shaving your beard. How many of you didn't honor that command this morning to not shave your beard? A lot of guys' hands, a couple girls, not too many. No, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But a lot of us, okay. We, we, most of us shave, right, before we come to work, before we go to classes. You know, the verse right before this says, don't shave your beard. The verse right after it forbids prostitution. And right in the middle is the one that says, don't mark your flesh. So we get into these, these hermeneutical struggles when we say that, well, we're responsible for some of the law, but not all of the law. Well, how do you determine? But you know what? Paul's answer is very definite here. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. You're responsible for none of the Old Testament law. Now, the moral law of God is still standing. It was, it, was, it was wrong for Joseph to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. He said that would have been a sin. You know what? He was right, but the Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet. Was it wrong to commit adultery before the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Was it wrong to commit adultery under the law? Absolutely. Is it wrong to commit adultery today? Absolutely. It wasn't wrong because it was in the law. It was in the law because it was wrong. And God's moral law definitely survives, but it's not because it was a part of the Mosaic law. So what he's saying here is that there is a release from the law that we have as Christians. 
In page 374 of the textbook that you're sitting on, or the, the hymn book underneath you, Philip Bliss wrote famously, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. So the message of this passage is, you don't want the law, Jewish believers. You don't want to go back to that life and that bondage and that curse and that temporary uh, state that was never a part of the promise. You are released from the law. And as a result, Paul gives us three outflows of that release from the law. Three ways that that manifests itself or should in your life and mine. And I know I've got to hurry, but these are incredible. The Bible says first, we are not prisoners but free. Look at verse number 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. For before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith that should afterward be revealed. There is this bondage. There is this, this uh, prisoner. We are, uh, and the analogy here is that you are under the law. You are bound by the law prior to Christ. Now after the law, we're freed from that. We're no longer slaves. We are now free. The Bible echoes this thought in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 4 where the Bible says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So the first thing he wants you to see here is that because of the release of the law, number one, you're not slaves, you're free. By the way, that affects how we live our Christian life, right? You don't live your life in a way that you have to to please God or you have to to glorify God. or you have, Guess what? You get to serve an almighty, holy, omniscient God. You get to do that. It's not a part of the law. It's not that you're under bondage. It's not that if you don't, God won't love you or that he won't view you as righteous or that he won't. And guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how long you fast. It doesn't matter how uh, many times you read through your Bible. It doesn't matter how long you pray. It doesn't matter how many doors you knock when you go so many. It doesn't matter how, how late you stay up reading your Bible. It doesn't matter how uh, often you do your spiritual disciplines. Those are not unimportant disciplines. But what Paul is saying here is you're free. You're free from the law. You're standing with God is in Christ alone. Don't try to supplement that or you'll end up supplanting it. You're free and not bond. Number two, he says, we're not children, but of age. Verse number 24, again, you're shut up under this faith. Verse 25, but after the faith is come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. For you're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. We're not under the schoolmaster of the law anymore. We're not children, we're of age. Don't you, does it ever bother you when somebody treats you like a complete child? Doesn't that bother you? When people just, just, they don't give you any respect, they don't give you any, they don't trust your judgment at all, they treat you like a complete child, like you're in, you know, third grade or something. Man, I, I got out of Bible college and I was maybe a, a year, or I don't know, a little bit early, not, not a whole lot, but I remember being all fired up and I'd go preach places or I'd go to, and people would just kind of look down at you, kind of pat you on the head, like that's a nice little 22, 23 year old. It's just kind of frustrating, right? Isn't it frustrating to be treated like a child like that? By the way, I found going bald and having four kids solves that problem. I found that. So people don't do that so much anymore. But, 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 but what Paul is saying here is that 
you're not a child. You're not under a schoolmaster. You're of age. Guess what? This is what it's all been building to. This is what Moses is all about. This is what Abraham was all about. This is what Noah was all about. This is what the, the Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, the promise of the one that would come. This is what it was all about. Guess what? We're here. What a wonderful age and day to follow God because this is the culmination. Now, there's still more to come, right? There's still the restoration and the completion and the millennial reign. Man, there's a lot to look forward to. But guess what? I'm glad I'm born now and not 3,000 years ago. Because I'm not under the law. I'm not a bond. I'm free. I'm not a child. I'm of age. And then lastly, he says, we are not isolated, but we are unified. Verse number 28, the Bible says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. There's a guy that you've all heard of. His name's Plato. Uh, schooled by Socrates. And his most famous student was uh, Aristotle, who then schooled uh, uh, Alexander the Great. You've heard of Plato. Plato, toward the end of his life, wrote that I thank the gods that I am a man and not a woman, that I am a Greek and not a barbarian, that I am a, that I am a free man and not a slave. Well, in the Second Temple period, in the Intertestament period, the Jews kind of got a hold of that, and there's a rabbinical tradition that extends to this day where Jews will pray, God, thank you for making me a Jew and not a Gentile. The rabbis will pray this. Thank you for making me a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you for making me a man and not a woman. Thank you for making me free and not a slave. What an incredible blessing. And what Paul, by the way, Paul undoubtedly thanked God by using that rabbinical blessing before he got saved. Doesn't that sound egoistical, chauvinistic, sexist, racist? I mean, it's all rolled into one, right? Classist, all of that. And yet what Paul is saying is because of the gospel, look at what he says in verse number 28 here, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He's not saying that those distinctions don't exist. He's saying they don't matter. There's neither Jew nor Greek. You know what? The church and a Bible college ought to be the least racist group of people anywhere because of the gospel. It is antithetical to the gospel of Christ to be racist in our dealings or even in our thinkings about other people and in Christ, in the church. There's not like there's no differences that exist. I hope there are a lot of differences that exist, but they don't matter. I just want to just pause and say, make sure that you're not or wouldn't be understood as being racist. Don't use those jokes. Don't use those innuendos. Don't, 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 don't be the person that, that, that it don't, maybe it's the way you think even. Maybe you think before, thank, thank you that you may be like this person and not like that person. Don't do that. That's antithetical to the gospel. He says, uh, we are, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He says next there's neither male nor free, or next he says there's neither bond nor free. Now, we thankfully don't live in a society with that traditional kind of slavery, but we have certainly radically different classes. Real quick, let me talk about this. We've got a lot of differences in this group right here, right? There are some people in this room 
that when you go home for Christmas, you might get a new car. You might get a bunch of name brand clothes. You might get the brand new iPhone. It's going to be awesome. There's other people in this room, you don't even know if you should go home for Christmas. If you do go home, there's not a real intact family structure there. And, and if a couple people didn't get, get, get together, you know you're not going to have much. Because a good meal was mac and cheese, and a good month is when you can pay rent. And here's what happens if we're not careful. We look at people, and we can assess, and we make judgments on them, and we treat them differently based on where they are in their social standing. Hey, if your roommate was a millionaire, would you treat them any different? If the answer is yes, start treating them like a millionaire. Do that to everybody on campus. You'll be a little bit closer to what it looks like to be in a gospel community. Because what he's saying here is not that there... Could you imagine going to church and sitting next to an officer of the occupying army that was, in, that was occupying your country? Imagine if, like, Russia took over the United States. <laughs> and... Uh, you went to church. Could you imagine sitting down and worshiping next to a lieutenant in the Russian army that was occupying your country? Did the Jews have to do that? That's first century, right? And what Paul is saying is in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. Female. Now the Bible teaches complementarianism. There's distinct responsibilities in the home and in the church. But you know what? There's complete equality too distinct roles but equal in our standing with God and sometimes I think I think we can get a little bit a little bit biased or a little bit jaded against the opposite sex women can do this toward men guys can do this I'm a guy is is the phrase like a girl ever meant to be a compliment you throw like a girl <laughs> you swing like a girl you kick like a girl is that ever a compliment does anybody ever aspire to be oh a woman driver that's what I want to be like when I grow up right is that a good thing right if we're not careful there's this bias that we just get comfortable with we just get used to it And if you're not careful you can think that you're a little bit smart I'll tell you what I married a lady that is smarter than I am that is she got better grades than I did she when we got married was earning more than I was and had more saved in the bank say so how does that make you feel Toby blessed it makes me feel blessed I can have really good conversations with my wife and she can, she can we, we talk through theology and it's not like that's all we do. We're not like super nerds. I mean, we've got, we're normal married people as well. We love coffee and we love time together. But the reality is there ought not to be this bias and this prejudice one against another. Here's, here's the truth. We are the body of Christ. We are in Christ. We are in the gospel, we are united as one. So what Paul is saying here is you're not slave, you're free. You're not a child, you're of age. And lastly, he's saying you're not isolated, but you're united. I want to ask you this question. Is the gospel that Paul taught the Galatian church here in Genesis chapter, in Galatians chapter number three, the gospel that you and I believe, that you and I live, that you and I display and propagate in our life.